Hi everyone, I hope you're all well. Oh, I've got a very exciting guest to talk to today. I'm really looking forward to it. He's a sweet, lovely man. I've known him for quite a few years. He was in an amazing band called Spandau Ballet. I'm sure you all remember that. He's been an actor and he's a songwriter as well. I mean, he's just amazing. And he's got some news about a new band that he's in, which is very exciting. But I'll let him tell you all about that. Anyway, I want you to welcome Gary Kemp. Gary Kemp, how are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Oh, thank you for joining me for a cuppa. That's have it. you had your cuppa yet? I have this uh, regular drink every morning, which is a bit fancy, but what I do is like it? it. Well, I use, um, I just squeeze half a lemon mm-hmm. uh, and then I have some um, Maluka honey and I put in some cider vinegar, a little bit of oh, cider yeah. vinegar with the mother. You have to shake them the mother away. That's right. right. I've bottle. got some actually. Put of that and a bit of the turmeric. And um, oh. now, how like, this is interesting because um, we go to a Pilates class and our ladies always going on about our teachers or about, about turmeric. So how is it in powder form? You because you can no, get it in different forms, can't you? It's a little squirty bottle, and you just have one pump, and it goes in. And oh, so it's liquid. It's liquid. Okay. You have to have black pepper with turmeric. That's to right. Activate it. So in the vinegar I've got, it's got black pepper with it. So it's a good oh. combo. My wife just has green tea. She's much easier. Yeah, that's what they <laughs> drink. I'm afraid I have. All, I, in the morning, I have you know builders builders tea. I've got peppermint at the moment, so yeah. I go <laughs> I go on to healthy tea. But, uh, I've just gone decaf actually because in the last few months, um, I think I felt it was just raising my anxiety too much caffeine well even it were you a coffee drinker yeah i i am i have decaf coffee now so okay um because i've i've never drunk coffee i don't like it very much it gives um, me heart palpitations well that, i started to get a lot more anxiety through yeah. it i think and maybe i was just in an anxious mood and it was just putting me over the top you know my wife can drink cups of it and it doesn't affect her really so yeah. i've never been a, I, I i drink tea and that's got caffeine in but that doesn't i don't know whether it's got the levels of caffeine that coffee does because no. I, I don't get that reaction. And I only have one in the morning with my cereal. Anyway, now we've gone through our diet. I'm going to try that, though. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. I might have to ring you up for the recipe. Okay. <laughs> so I've been reading up about your your life is I mean you've done so many things haven't you it's amazing I knew about I knew a lot of them but um I mean you you've you know I'm obviously been one of the biggest bands ever um acted and I mean the Cray film it will always stick with I mean that's I think one of the great films about the craze that was ever made was that your idea No no it wasn't and you know what? It was funny because early on in the 80s, we kind of had a bit of a joke that we, we put into the music press that Martin and I might play the craze in a movie, but we never really took it seriously. And um, because we'd been actors, because, you know, I started as a child actor with Anna Scher, uh, theatre uh, club. And um, I, 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 it seemed to me that it, it was possible to do it, but I, I never thought anyone would approach us. And, and so someone did. And, and and yeah, we we uh, we took it on. Um, I, and I, I remember being in 
when it got announced and various, you know, getting into cabs and cab drivers like, mate, you cannot be playing the craze. Look at you. <laughs> and even when I went to see Ronnie in prison, Ronnie I, said... I was going to ask you about that. Ron, oh, yeah, my God. Ron, Ronnie said, you're not going to wear that earring, are you, when you play? <laughs> 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 but, um, and even then I felt kind of like, you know, that we didn't look anything like them, you know, when we first thought about when we first offered this role. I remember, you know, going to, to sit to visit Charlie and Aunt May in Bethnal Green. Can I just tell you this story? You don't mind. Oh, I'm please. Rambling on. No, I'm, it's absolutely fascinating. Aunt, Aunt May had a, had a, she's played by Charlotte Cornwall in the film, but Aunt May in real life had a photograph book she wanted to show us and uh, of, of, of the twins. And there were some photographs and they, they had sort of people cut out of them. You know, just like, just you'd see like whole, she'd gone round with scissors around scissors, them. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I said, why, 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 are they, why are these photographs cut up? She said, they turned Queen's evidence. <gasps> so she didn't like them anymore. She cut oh them out of the pictures. Um, I thought it, you were going to say that, that they'd yeah, been they bumped off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're in the West Way. Were you, were you at all nervous about playing the craze? That beca well, because of their reputation, if they didn't like it, that they might. <laughs> well, I think they'd already, I mean, Charlie, you know, they said they'd approved the script. I don't think Ronnie had ever read the script. Um, Martin didn't go and visit Reggie because Reggie was only, a, he was in a more, he was in a category A prison. Even though Ronnie was the sort of, you know, inverted commas mad one, he was in Broadmoor, he had much more access. But, but Ronnie was only allowed one visit a month. Reggie, I mean, sorry. Um, and he would have that visit and then kind of brood on it, you know, think about it and distort it maybe. So Martin said, I'm not going to go and visit Reggie. I just, you know, I know what we would, what we needed to do, Martin and I, was appear as twins, because we're not. And we needed to come across powerful, powerfully as twins on, on screen. And I think visiting Ronnie, did he give me any? No, I got no hints from how to play the part. Ronnie had a very high voice, very high voice. Spoke like that. Yeah, nicely. If I speak, try to speak like that, it'd be ridiculous. That's um, so funny. But he did, he did, uh, he did look me right in the eye the whole way through the time I was talking to him. And we'd had a couple of non-alcoholic beers. And then he said, I've got to go. The medication makes me dehydrated. So he left. And this intern came up to get the money for the two non-alcoholic beers that we'd bought, I'd bought. <laughs> and he said, that's a hundred pounds. I said, how could it be hundred pounds? We only had two non-alcoholic beers. He said, I hope you don't mind, but Ronnie put a few fags on there as well. Oh my goodness, that's hysterical. <laughs> well, you not, weren't going to argue with him, were you? No, exactly. <laughs> he might have friends outside. Still. But I think Peter Medak created a great atmosphere. Oh, he, he was. A, uh, it's a wonderful film. It, it, can you still get it? Can you still stream it? Because people should <clears throat> yeah, watch it. It's, it's on. It's on everywhere. It, yeah, yeah. Is it I mean, on what, kind of one of the streaming channels? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. I, Must I, I don't, be. I don't know. But it's, it's on ITV4 every other week. But um, oh, is it, it? was a play about women. That's actually what it was really about. It's about the women that surrounded Ronnie and Reggie and how they'd brought up, you know, post-war ki kids. You know, and um, did she feel that it was a failure? Who knows? You know, but but Billy Whitelaw, who plays Violet. Was, was incredible. She was absolutely wonderful. Was it was it difficult working with your brother playing those sort of you know 
slightly mad people. <laughs> I don't think so. We'd been in business together, hadn't we? You know, we yeah. sort of we knew the power of that celebrity, which is, you know, it's not dissimilar. Oh, that's interesting, yeah, because they were incredibly famous, weren't they? Especially in their manner. Yeah, and uh, you know, actually nationally, I think in the press a lot, you know, and. I think we understood that. We understood about being brothers, obviously, and we'd acted together. The very first job we ever did, I think, was together on Jackanory when I was... Actually, it was my second job. It was his first. And, and I was 10 and he was 8. Oh. Um, and maybe 11 and 9 or something like that, you know. And, and we played... They were, they were doing a Jackanory where they filmed it uh, rather than someone just reading a story. And... Martin and I played two kids coming back from the Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and something about, yeah, Bob Wilson made a fantastic save, you know. It was, uh, so did you, did you both go to um, Anisha originally or did you go to normal schools? No, Anisha wasn't a school. So oh, we went wasn't. to normal schools. There is a, isn't, there, isn't there a school? No. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was a school. My mum and dad never even knew I was going. So I was about 10 when I first went. And what, it's after school or weekends yeah. or something? Two, oh, okay. Two, two evenings a week after school. And it was very cheap. And, and I already had a paper round. And, and I just used some of my money to go into Anna's. And the first that my mum knew about me being at Anna's was when I got a part in a film. <laughs> and she had to sign a contract. Because she just thought I was just street raking. <laughs> she, no, I was going out when I was five on my own. Oh my! Uh, five God. or six. I remember. I remember the World Cup final was on, 1966. I was six years old, oh and my, all, my aunts and uncles were around watching it. And I got. I wasn't into it. I was a kid. I was bored. So I so said, "I'm going to the park." I remember walking out to the park about three blocks away, and then no one was there because they were all <laughs> watching the football. Watching the match. And, and, yeah, and suddenly everyone run, running in, saying, "We're we're, we're the champions." And they haven't come out to see where you were. <laughs> I just think all the kids in my area used to walk to the park. Yeah, actually, I, well, I, I'm, a, you know, 10 years before you, 14 years before you, and we used to play. We, I, I didn't go out of my area, but we played in the street. You'd just go and say, Mum, I'm going up the road to see whoever, and you'd just play yeah. outside. But it, well, it, it was all pretty safe. It was two it was. blocks away. Where so did you grow up? Islington, Essex Road. Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. On and was, Street. was what was that? Because it's quite posh now, isn't it? Yeah, Islington. No, it's split in half. It always has been. So I, if you're on one side of the Essex Road, you're yeah. you in council houses. And if oh, you're okay. on the other side of the Essex Road, you're in Canterbury in the posh bit. Well, you know, I, I lived in a house until I was 15 that, in fact, I didn't only lived on one floor of the house. We rented it initially from the landlord and then from the council. There wasn't any separate front door. On, on our floor, we just walked upstairs. Our old lady lived downstairs. We walked up to our floor, and we lived on that floor. There was there was no bathroom, just a tiny kitchen and two bedrooms and a living room. You'd walk up to the next floor, and my cousin lived there with her. Where family. was the bathroom? There wasn't a bathroom. Never had a bathroom until I was fifteen, when I when the council moved me into a renovated house. So we had one outside loo that we shared between two families and an old lady. And when, if I wanted a bath, we'd have, we used to have what we called a good wash in the sink, right? <laughs> yeah. All of us, that's what we'd have, a good wash. And then if I wanted a bath, my dad used to take me to the local baths on Tiberton Street, which wow. 
that I didn't really like anyway, because I never trusted it. You know, I never liked the idea of getting to a bath that anyone has been in before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you know. Amazing. It's interesting because Lee, Lee, who you know, my husband, he grew up in Warwickshire. And he again is he's like six years older than me. And again, they didn't they didn't have an inside bathroom or the, the loo was up in the garden in a shed. Yeah. And because his his he's got a sister who's two years older than him. And if he wanted to go and have a pee in in the evening before going to bed, he said if, if it was dark, she'd creep up behind him and make ghost noises to fr- oh, yeah, <laughs> frighten yeah. him well, out they, the outside of the loo. And in the I'd, winter, I'd never heard of, I haven't spoken to somebody of your generation who still had yeah. that because it's usually, you know, from further back. Well, I think, you know, we were just waiting to be moved by the council. And then when they moved us into a place with a bathroom, it was like a palace. You know, we I bet. Move. My nan been. had a bath, so I wasn't going to get in her bath. <laughs> 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 so when, so why did you go what made you did you have a friend who went to Anna Share? I mean oh, yeah. how did you know about it because growing up in that environment you wouldn't think oh I want to be an actor yeah no I had a friend who went there and he said oh, you know it's just really good fun and I don't know why she was brilliant Anna she she basically just embraced the local working class community brilliant. but eventually you'd she started to get middle class kids coming in and I think there was that cross-pollination you know I, be, I remember going to a house and seeing books on the shelf for the first time oh we wow. didn't have books at home we went to the library if we wanted to yeah yeah actually we, we did that. yeah and um and my, my dad was it took me to the library initially but I um yeah so I, I, I went along with a friend a guy called Stephen Brassett who, who is no longer an actor but 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 the kids in there that were did become actors that were all about my age were sort of Pauline Quirk Linda Robson, Phil Daniels, Peter Hugo Daly. Amazing. There's a bunch of others. There's quite a lot, you know, that, that kept, went after. I mean, Kathy Burke came just after I started as well. She's, she's a bit younger. Uh, and did you and Martin go together? No, not initially. He he started going a bit later. He was too shy, but not as soon as my mum found out about it, she went, take your brother. <laughs> Get him off my hand. Take your brother. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what happened when he joined the band. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Take your brother. Yeah. Uh, so you, so from there, did you then think oh, that's what I want to do? I want to be an actor. Well, in 1971, I did a the lead in a children's film foundation movie. They were the movies they made for Saturday morning pictures. Oh, lovely! Yeah, it had Liz Fraser in it and Alfred Marks and Roy Detrice, wow. and it was a big number. And uh, and I took six weeks off of my my then new senior school um, to, to do this film. And it was the 21st anniversary of the Children's Film Foundation and it got a royal premiere wow. because of that. So the Duchess of York came to the premiere and, um, and, and, and film 71 or film 72 maybe it was, I can't remember, interviewed me. And, and I remember doing this interview because I remember watching it on the telly. I haven't found it on YouTube anyway. And he said, do you want to be an actor when you grow up? And I said, no, I want to be a journalist because my dad was a printer and he had to leave school when he was 15. But he always said to me, oh, I really wanted to carry on with school and become a journalist, but, but, but our family couldn't afford it. So I think I said it for him. But not long after that, you know, I had my guitar. I was starting to write songs. And then when I got to 16, I, I went and told Anna that I wanted to leave 
because I wanted to concentrate on being a musician. Oh, that's interesting. So when did you get your first guitar? It was uh, Christmas 1971. I woke up to this guitar and I was horrified, you know, because I was still wanting toys and various stuff like that. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, they bought me this thing that smelled of furniture how, polish. So how old were you? Eleven. Oh, you wanted toys. So maybe, Did you yeah. still believe in Father Christmas maybe, then? Maybe. It was Christmas 1970. I have to tell you. That's right. I didn't believe it. I don't think I believed in Father Christmas. Uh, my, my, <laughs> my dad had seen me playing a toy guitar that was upstairs in my cousin's bedroom. And I don't know, he spotted something. And he saw this guitar on sale for a fiver in the window of an electrical shop in Holloway Road. You know, because in those days, you'd, you'd, you'd go in and buy... Like I spoke to Johnny Marr, my friend from the Smiths the other day, and he said his first guitar he got in a shop that sold spades and buckets. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't think you... you know, I don't know how good the, the guitar was. I think it was... And uh, anyway, That's so... That's hysterical. So they gave me this guitar and a book, and the book was Burt Whedon's Playing a Day. Oh, I remember Burt Whedon, Yeah. So no matter who, you know, I've just been reading George uh, Harrison's new uh, new biography, and that's exactly what happened to him. His parents bought him a guitar and a bird wing playing a day book. Wow. And this was 10 years before me. So I, even more actually, and I... I'll say uh, a bit more. Yeah. And he Bert turned being, out pretty good, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> thank, I remember, you, thank you, Bert Whedon. <laughs> but, you know, we speak to a lot of people on, on, on my podcast and and there's, uh, you know, because we do the rock podcast, Rock and Turs. And, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about that in a bit. They all but say. But carry on about your guitar. The amount of people that say, Bert Wien's playing a day, you know. Oh. Anyway, what I did was I, I remember there was one song, I'm thinking it was something like if I had a hammer or something. There was four chords and I went... I like the chords, but I don't like the, the song. I don't like the, the melody. And I started to write my own melody. And this was like within a few weeks, of, no, a couple of months with having the guitar. And by now it's Easter. And I took my guitar into school and I played it to my teacher, who was also a guitarist. And I said, look, I've written this, this song, but I don't know what to write any lyrics about. And he said, well, it's Easter. Why don't you write about Easter? So the song went something like, Jesus rode through Jericho on his way to the cross. He met by Bartimaeus, who his sight had lost. It was one of those, right? <laughs> and my dad was so impressed. He said, we've got to record it, son. So we had nothing oh. to record it on. So he took me to Waterloo Station, to one of those acetate booths, where you could go in and, set and record uh, uh, onto a record and send a message to a friend. It wasn't meant for music. And so he, he, he pushed me in there and I had to sort of add the guitar a bit sort of at an angle because it was too <laughs> narrow, this booth. And, and I started singing this song and I could see actually, I didn't realise there's only a minute on this record. So as it get to the end, I had to go, Jesus rose the Jericho and he goes to the cross. <laughs> you had to speed up to get that. It's so yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. Did you finish? Did you finish? Um, you went to grammar school, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I went to grammar school. I think they were brilliant. Where did you go? Where did I go? I went yeah. to one. I because I grew up in Northwest London. I grew up in Neasden. Oh, right. right next to Wembley, because our back garden used to back up, used to back onto a council yard, and the other side of the council yard was Wembley. 
Because I can remember as a little girl playing in the garden on a Saturday and we'd always known, know if there was a goal because you could hear yeah. it because you could see the Wembley Towers. Amazing. I was quite sad when they came down. Yeah, absolutely. I know the arch is lovely, but I was sad they took the tower I mean, down. I connect I connect Live Aid mostly with that, you know, I'm playing on stage. Yeah, oh, absolutely, that's right. That must have been unbelievable. Yeah. But, but, the, um, but the grammar school, yeah, I think grammar yeah, school. Yeah, so I went to Bronze, one in Bronsbury, Kilburn. Right, right. A girls' grammar school. But they were brilliant grammar schools, weren't they? Well, they were. And I think for me, what was good about them was I was beginning to mix with more middle class kids. Mm-hmm. And I remember becoming, because of my guitar, becoming sort of forming a band, becoming friendly with various people from different, you know, walks of life. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which was this, there was this family called the Landersmans, Jay Landersman, who was a sort of counterculturalist, apparently. His son, Miles, and I, and, and Phil Daniels, the actor, yeah, I know. decided we were going to be in a band together. So I'm about 12 now. And uh, I remember going to that house, Miles's house, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a wok. The smell was disgusting, but I realised that I found out it was garlic. Right. I, I saw half open bottles of wine. I thought, oh my God, well, it's not even Christmas. And, um, so and a poster on the wall of, of Chairman Mao, you know, <laughs> or Che Guevara, Che Guevara. Oh, okay. so, oh, yeah, that's more like it. And then we all ended up down in the basement um, playing, funny enough, uh, a, a song, Set the Controls to the Heart of the Sun, which is a Pink Floyd song, which I, full circle, I end up doing now on stage with Nick Mason. I say, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about <laughs> yeah, that in a minute. Yeah. That's amazing. So, jump ahead a bit. When when did you? Because you, you you were in a, you had a few bands before Spandau was formed, right? Yeah, yeah. I I um yeah school band and mixing with some older guys that were hanging out in Islington with a local music shop and various pubs. And this is before punk, right? So this would be 1974-75. I was in a band with all those guys playing pubs. And they'd play my songs. I was writing songs. I was 14, 15. And wow. these, some of these guys were in their late 20s. One was 30. And um, the good thing was I, I couldn't shift any of the gear because my mum and dad wanted me back as soon as possible. And, um, and so uh, I, I, and my brother started to, to do some um, roading as well. We came along to some of the shows. And, uh, and, yeah, we played sort of like the Pied Bull and, and local Islington pubs, really. We were part of that pub rock scene, but not successful. And then what summer 1976, I went with Steve Norman and a guy called Steve Dagger to see the Sex Pistols play at the screen on the green. I didn't know anything about them. It was the Pistols, but supported by the Clash and the Buzzcocks. And I had to go into rehearsal the week after uh, with my band. I went straight and I went, I'm leaving. I've just seen this band and it's changed my mind. I don't want to be in, I don't want to be in this group playing country rock anymore. And, <laughs> oh, uh, is that what you were playing? Oh, well, you know, that was the fashionable thing at the time. And we all went into school that September and Steve Norman and I uh, got together with a guy called John Keeble and another bass player, a different bass player. My brother was only 14, wasn't playing bass. And we, um, we started what would eventually become Spandau Ballet. Uh, by auditioning for singers and eventually we found this bloke Tony Hadley who we, we wanted him to be the singer because he was the only he was the tallest kid in the school and he had a leather jacket 
we thought that'd do. <laughs> he had a pretty good voice too. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> but you went you went for the jacket first. <laughs> Initially, yeah. And he was kind of a bit bullied at school. And uh, I think because he was tall. And um, I don't know. But, but And I thought we thought that, that was good because he was a bit of an outsider. And in the punk world, that was a good thing to be. So, so do you think of your the beginnings of Spandau being That's completely not. punk? It was then. We weren't called Spandau Ballet. We were called um, oh, okay. v- various names like the Because I, I get a bit muddled up with all the with new types of yeah, new- yeah. So, yeah, because so initially we were punk. Okay, and then you moved on into yeah. what became yeah. Span, you know, because with me being that much older, yeah. I kind of and I by then. Are you talking about mid seventies? I was like yeah. in America a lot, so I was very into country music. Actually, that's when I got obsessed with because mm-hmm. in America, as you know, country music is like it's God. Where, it's where it's from. I mean, pardon? <clears throat> it's where it's from. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's brilliant. And there was and every, a big scene in London. There was a DJ called Charlie Gillett that used to play all that stuff on the radio here. You know, and there was it was double denim everywhere. You know, and I think that's kind of what punk was washing away. Yeah, extent. yeah, I understand. Um, so we had various names, The Roots, The Cut, The Makers. And then we sort of went into a bit of a hiatus where my brother joined. And he joined because Steve Dagger, who was three years above us at school um, and now at the LSE uh, and managing us, he said, you, you've got to get rid of your bass player. And I said, why? He's really good. And he said, because you've got to put Martin in the group. I said, but why? He doesn't play. So, because he's the best looking bloke we know. And, <laughs> and that was it. So I had to teach Martin the bass. I mean, in fairness, he'd already been playing a bit of guitar in a punk band that was awful called The Defects. <laughs> but um, we, uh, so I taught him the bass. I mean, unfortunately, we had to sack the bass player, but I didn't do it. I managed it. But Richard's been lovely. I bump into Richard all the time. And he's, he's still there. In fact, he got his name mentioned on Modern Family, this Richard Miller. Because, Did he? Yeah, because Ed oh. Norton, there's a scene, where there's, a, there's an episode in Modern Family where the doorbell rings and this bloke who looks like a neuromantic with a bass guitar appears at the door. And she says, it's a gift I'm giving to you because True was our favourite song when we met. And this oh. is the bass player from, from, uh, from Spandau Ballet and he's come to sing it for you. And he says something like, you're not the bass player from Spandau Ballet. He says, yes, I am. I'm the one between... Richard Miller and Martin Kent. I went, oh my God, how's that for research? Wow. So I phoned Richard, I said, you're on Modern Family, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, my brother joined the band and and then we didn't know what direction we were going in. And then suddenly we found this club called The Blitz with Steve Strange. Oh, okay. So we were hanging out in that club and there was this whole group of people which eventually got called Neuromantics. You know, Steve Strange was the sort of leader, but Boy George was coming out of there and, and um, we had a different sound, a different style. We got more synthesized, orientated dance music. And we became the sort of house band of the Blitz Club in London. And then um, that's when all the record companies wanted to sign us. And, uh, and, and, yeah. It must that's have been fun. really exciting when when that happened, when all the, the record companies suddenly wanted to sign you up. But I think we felt it was, what was double it, what, what was happening was it was the new decade. So it was 1980. And there was a sense that, we had a responsibility to, to do something that was different, that was ours, that was about this new time. 
And pop music and youth culture seem to be like that since mm -hmm. your time and even before, since the 50s, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and Teddy Boys, which my dad was. Well, it was since, I think it was since after the war. Yeah. You know, when the war ended, because I think before that, youth culture didn't really exist, did it? No. I don't think. People just And went then after the war and the getting through, you know, through the 50s, and then it's when start, it's and then in the sixties it, it exploded, and then it was everything about being young and new and different. And but it was rock music coming in, you know, pop, you know, American rock music, Elvis Presley, and all of that that changed, you know, and and, and um, you know, rock around the clock, and uh, it, and it felt like the baton was always being passed. Oh, you know, that was yesterday's youth culture. That was yesterday's music. What are, what are we got to do now? So there was always that going on. And, and this thing happened at the beginning of the 1980s and it, it felt like a very exciting place to be. I think we all actually worshipped Bowie. He was oh. really, you know, the, the, our god from yeah. very early on, you know, from the glam rock period of 73 when we all... Well, he, I mean, he was extraordinary. And he, he again, he was unlike anybody else. And that's that's yeah. kind of yeah. what catapulted him, apart from his talent... Which was enormous, but he was just so different, wasn't it? We'd never, well, I'd never seen anything like that. Oh, but wish he was around he, to have a cup of tea with you. Oh, so do I. Tell me, unbelievable. He left us far too soon. It's unbelievable, really. Now you were you were the main uh, writer, right? You wrote yeah. the lyrics and the music. Yeah. I for wrote, all yeah, the songs, all the songs, yeah. And you, 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 you sold a through. I, I sold a few. I read you'd sold over twenty three million. Or something. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Is I that mean, right? Yeah. Oh I think. God. I think as a. I think what's been great is beyond having to sell records. Is well, it means people love you if you sell that. Much. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and we definitely had our time. I mean, certainly the the eighties was definitely a great time for us. You know, we. You know, we, there was a lot of success throughout that period and uh, but I think what's what's been exciting is the fact that that the music hasn't gone away that it still appears in various films and songs and places that adverts that you well, hear didn't it all you, the time when didn't well, didn't you all come back and play the O2 or something we did quite we, recently when was did. that in 2000 and something 2010, we got back together. Amazing. But to fill the O2 is five nights is amazing. No, we, we, so we did um, we'd all fallen out and there would have been a big court case. And, um, oh, okay. You know, the usual don't you stuff. Think, don't you think that seems to happen with most bands? <laughs> it happens with a lot, yeah. I mean, you start as kids, you know, know. and you... And then you grow up. You and grow up have and, different, yeah. and then someone wants to leave and someone doesn't want you to leave and someone wants... and uh, Whatever, we all fell out and then we ended up in court. And it was a nasty time. And about five years after that, a bit more actually. I I really wanted to get the band back together. I was putting together a DVD of us playing live, and I thought, you know, this is we were so good, and we st it would be such a shame never to yeah, play with each silly. other again. So I, you know, I tried to ring round, and Tony and I were sort of enemies at that point, which is, you know, what that was always the same. Tony and I were never that close, but but we had you know two different. We were good at two different things that together made something exciting. He had a great voice and I was a good songwriter and, you know, together it worked. And and I wanted to carry on again and eventually I got Tony to to believe in it and we, we did get back together. And we've got back together since, but it's always been a bit tricky, I have to say. 
but, but you know when we're on stage we forget all the trickiness and we just enjoy the music that we like to play you know it means it means something to them more than us you know because as you know we we move on and we do different things and we get excited about whatever we're doing at any given time but just to, you know as i know you know there are bands that i fell in love with when i was of a certain age you know usually around 13 14 that will always be supergroups in my mind yeah and but also don't you think music has that power from whatever you know, I hit. I can hear songs by Joni Mitchell from 1973 or something, and it'll take me right back to that moment and why I loved yeah. her so much and what I was going through. I mean, music is so powerful in that respect. Well, and, people get a bit and, angry when we don't get back together, and they say, "Oh, we've got to bang your heads together and just get." Them. But, but what were they really asking for? And I don't mean this in a in a, in a way to uh, denigrate their passion. What they're asking for is their youth back. Yeah. Say, Bring, take me. I, I need you to take me back. Yeah, it's true. To the bit I loved in my life when I was innocent. But that's lovely. That must make you feel yeah. really nice, I Absolutely. would think. The, the, big, the biggest thrill I've ever, I think this is the, for me, it was just phenomenal. But my football team is Arsenal. And um, we have just start, they have just started to take on singing Gold, which is one of my songs. And, and they use... One of the boy, one of the players' names is inserted into, into the song, Zinchenko, and when I, I took my son to Wembley to watch Arsenal play Man City uh, in the summer, in August, and we won, and there were forty thousand Arsenal fans all singing gold. I put it up on my Instagram, How and uh, you can see my face. I am oh so my, chuffed. Oh my goodness! My son is hiding under his hoodie. <laughs> 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 no one knew I was even in the room. They the that thing is, is though, so Twiggy, funny. most people don't even know who Span might not even know who Spandau Ballet are. They just know that song. They know various. Oh, songs. I, th I think most people. I think they do. But anyway, Maybe. but young ones. But and also, didn't you? You got given an Ivor Novello Award, didn't you? In oh, two thousand and something. Yeah, that, for songwriting. Yes. Yeah, I, I was very proud of that Ivor Novello Award. Well, you should be. That's brilliant. Yeah, they're sort of the songwriting awards, and um, and I got it for body of work called and uh, which, you know and uh, I yeah it's it's nice to get to that stage you do feel a bit I just got an award just recently from songwriter songwriting called the, the BMI award which doesn't mean body mass index <laughs> it means broadcasting <laughs> music incorporation and and I got this I, I got yeah, I wouldn't give me one for body mass index <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so you're and happy I, to say and I am um, I felt so like an imposter I was so nervous getting this award. I don't like getting those kind of awards because as, as, a, as a writer and as a creative person, you really never feel your work is done. You're always trying to do something better. And, and that's what's wonderful about creative people like you is that they're, you know, they're, I mean, look at McCartney. I mean, you know, he's in his 80s and he's still out there. He's yeah. on tour. He's Amazing. on tour. My I said to him, why are you going on tour again? Do you need the money? And we really laughed. <laughs> but he loves it, you know, So, and that's why, you know, you're the same ilk. It's that thing you've got to do. He's amazing on stage. I mean, I love that amazing. concert I went to see at the O2 a few years ago, three hours long. And Absolutely. Elton, have you, I mean, did you yeah. see Elton's yeah. last tour? Unbelievable. Right. What I love about it, I mean, I'm sure you do. I know them both 
quite well. Certainly Paul, I know really well. He's an old friend. I don't know Elton as well. He's a new friend. But what's amazing when you go and see them is the love in that auditorium. It's almost, you. it's like a blanket that comes down. It's a great, it's a great feeling. Do you know? But you must have experienced that when you play those places. I do, and I experience it even now with what I do, you know, with Nick. You know, I can feel the love going to Nick Mason, you know, and, and, and all of us. Can I just can I just mention something that was on my mind when you spoke about, you know, um, we speak about people still wanting to do it and being in their 80s. My wife was saying to me the other day about some experiment they'd done where they took a bunch of elderly people um in, into some sort of, I don't know, how, anyway, what, what happened is <laughs> they didn't put them in test tubes, but they did. I <laughs> put them somewhere. <laughs> and, and it was getting them to only think about their youth and only act like young people. Don't act like old people. Just, yeah. you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, everything you do is going to be like an, a younger person. Yeah. And they started to actually get better sight and get better hearing. And they started to get better mobility. I think when you're in a rock band like Mick Jagger or Paul, you're you're living your youth all the time. Yeah. It's yeah, inside, you know, you're seeing yourself as a young person on videos or hearing yourself, and you're feeling that young person when you get on stage. I think that's the secret to their longevity. I, do. I think you're right, actually. That's an amazing thing, actually, because when when Paul is on that stage, he's, I mean, his energy, I mean, he's, what, three hours on stage? Yeah, yeah. And every song is a hit song. It's hysterical. Yeah. But also that that feeling of love in the auditorium is um, <laughs> unbelievable. But for everybody. I mean, I've I've felt it on stage shows in a much smaller level because you know you're not playing to thousands. But you must have experienced it in you know those sort of environments. It must be. I always think it must be. Well, you can never relax and enjoy it. Because you're also doing something quite technical on stage, so you're yeah, sort of halfway house. Unless you're the singer, of course, and you can just stand back and sort of you know dwell in it. But no, it's hard. But how did I get around to doing Nick Mason? Um, well, Nick's been an old friend. He's the drummer from Pink Floyd. He's been an old friend for years. And about five years ago, someone came up with the idea of of Nick doing a solo project based on playing the early material. Because David and Roger both go out, and, and all the other tribute bands go out and do all the Dark Side of the Moon stuff. You need 10 players on stage. It's, you have to get the solos exactly how they were reproduced on the record, otherwise people aren't interested. And of course, as, if you were the drummer and that was your band, you'd be a bit lost. But we thought the older stuff, when it was just a four piece band, um, you know, up to Echoes and, and right from the Sid Barrett stuff, I don't know if you ever met Sid. Did you ever meet Sid Twiggy? I didn't. Lee may have done, but I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't meet um, any of Pink Floyd until I kind of came back from America in the eighties. Because Lee, again, my husband Lee, he knows he's known Dave Gilmore for a long time. Yeah. So I kind of met then, and we've met Nick since. But um, no, I didn't. I don't think Lee met Sid either. Well, we had this idea for the project that included Guy Pratt, who'd been playing bass with. Um, with Pink Floyd since Roger had left and plays on all the David Gilmore solo shows. And so it was me and, and a guy called uh, Lee Harris and Don Beacon. And, and we approached, um, anyway, they approached uh, Nick and Nick thought it was a great idea. So we went into rehearsals and we tried some stuff out and, you know, see Emily play, Arnold Lane. Oh, it must have been uh, so much fun. And also quite abstract, you know, psychedelic. 
and uh, and we kicked it off and and it's grown and grown and we played the Albert Hall last year and we've done two tours of America we've just come back from Australia wow you know it's uh, we did 32 countries last year and is it only the early Pink Floyd stuff or are first you doing stuff albums. of yours no huh? just Pink Floyd first five okay. albums this is Pink Floyd fans they buy the t-shirt they love Nick and he talks to them about about growing up in his life and we we play all the music and it's, it's a it's a two and a half hour show it's great it's been really good fantastic yeah yeah it gets me to, i get to play a lot more guitar from that and sing which i really like well that's amazing oh i want to come and see you tell me when you're going to play I again <laughs> next year oh it, i did want to bring up one thing because i think we, we probably oh god we i could talk to you for hours my tea's gone um, cold your tea's gone cold <laughs> You did. You played Serge in art. I did. I didn't loved you? Because Lee yeah. did art. He played Mark. Oh, did he? Yeah, it's a great play. Did you enjoy it? It's a wonderful play, isn't I it? I loved it. The Yasmina Reza, great play. And and I like playing Serge. I am Serge. I am a bit of... Are you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not a modern art buyer, to be honest, but I am a bit pretentious. I, <laughs> I aspire to pretentious... No, I aspire to art thing, things that are grand and I do enjoy art, and I do have ways of expressing myself that can be quite dull when I take people around and show them my bits. <laughs> <laughs> take uh, people up to see your etchings. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. And you've got four children, right? I've got four boys. So that's four boys? Sort of all, yeah. Laura, I, have a, I, have a, I have an elder son with Sadie, Sadie yeah, Frost. yeah, he's he just got he? married recently. He got married, yeah, yeah, and he's in the music business, but on the other side of the, of the, okay. of the camera, if you like. He's he's a and R man, um, lovely, and a manager. And then I've got a nineteen-year-old who's studying. That's Milo, and he's he's up in Edinburgh studying music uh, as a degree. And then I've got um, I've got a uh, Kit who plays the drums. And uh, he's no. 14. Yeah, yeah, he's 14. He's in rock band at school. Aww. And then I've got my 11-year-old Rex, who is a great jazz saxophone player. He really is. At 11? Well, he's, he's there in his grades, and he really sounds oh great. That's amazing. Well, it's obviously in the blood, love. <laughs> yeah, and that, those, last, those last three children, they're all, they're all with my, my wife of over 20 years now, Lauren, who, who I met in, in 2000. And she's a designer, isn't she? Or something? Uh, she was a costume designer. Costume. Commercials and some films. Lovely. And, um, but um, she's a bit snowed under as well. <laughs> the kids, like we all I are. Say. I mean, we take a lot of... We, we, they're our first job. They're our first job. That's what we Quite do. Quite right. We're bringing Absolutely. them up. And, and everything else gets fitted in around them. That, that's what it should be. I, lo I love that you say that. But, you know, for... Well, probably three at home now because Finn's married, yeah. but... Three kids at home is a big job. I mean, I, I always, I always, you know, when people say, "What do you do?" You know, and we all get caught in that trap at a party yeah. when we don't know someone. What do you, what do you do? My, my inclination is to say, "I'm a dad." That's really what I do. <laughs> that's and, wonderful. You know, and, that's um, a lovely, but that's what the a most lovely important creative job. Oh. Right. Absolutely. Listen, my daughter's going to be 45 in December <clears throat> and she's still my main priority. <laughs> still she, I'm all, I'm, you know, she's the, I'm the one she calls any problems and we discuss it all. And now she's got her two little ones. So my next priority. And you worry all lovely. the time, right? 
Pardon? You worry all the time. Worry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> So now you very sweetly come on my podcast. Yeah. And you said if I come on your podcast, tell me about Rock and Tours, right? Rock and Tours, yeah. I do yeah. it with Guy Pratt, the, the musician yeah. that, that we play with. And uh, he's played with Madonna and he's played with Michael Jackson. He's, he's wow. a player. And we just have, mostly it's people from rock. So it's people from music that come on. And um, we've had Sheryl Crow and Mick Fleetwood and. Um, Alice Cooper, John Bon Jovi. I mean, it's been great. And we've, we've been going f- since before the uh, pandemic and about 150 episodes or something. I'd love to have you on to talk about the 60s and the 70s and new in music and how music has affected your life and I'd how when you grew up on. as a kid and how you... Because you know, music is, in, I think to most people, it's a big, big part of that. It's certainly been a huge part of my life. And obviously what you I mean, do, I've never had the success that you, like you and Spando Bailey had in music but you know I've done a few albums and I played Broadway and yeah. sung Gershwin and exactly. so I'm, I, I will, if, if you'll have me I'll come on. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think just to paint a picture of what it was like in those in those yeah, and that, especially that decade was incredible and we're all we're all blessed by that decade you know and it's amazing to see the stones and the Beatles. Well, look, we talked about Paul being, what about Mick Jagger? We went to see, because I'd never, if you can believe this, because I'm the, that era, I'd never seen the Stones live, wow. ever. And I was having lunch, um, it was a kind of celebratory lunch for somebody, and I was sitting next to Ronnie Wood, who I've known and I love, I love Ronnie, he's so gorgeous. And, and he was... He was moaning because his fingertips were sore because he said, I've, I've been rehearsing because we're going back on tour. And he said, I haven't picked up a guitar and played for that long. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. back Skin into, goes you soft, know. Yeah. yeah. And he said, look, I've got a blister. And I said, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. And and I said to him, I can't, I said, are you going to play London? He said, we're going to be at Twickenham Stadium. And I said, I'm a bit embarrassed, but I've never seen the Stones live. He said, Twitch, you never seen us like I said I have you're you're coming so he got us tickets well, you it would've... was unbelievable this is about this is just before covid it must have been two, 2019 you know you were more famous than they were let's face it if you'd been in the room at, at one of their <laughs> gigs in the 60s they would not be looking at the rolling stones well I don't think <laughs> that's true but I have to say again they were on that stage for three hours yeah Jagger was um, when we left, Lee turned to me and said, when I grow up, I want to be Mick Jagger. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> he had so much energy and so much charisma. It, it was like, they, I and mean, as, they were all as amazing. We talking, as we talk, the new album they, uh, is at number one. Yeah, no, number one. God bless them. Fabulous. Keep it going. Long <laughs> and live. God bless you. It's been so lovely. I say we could chat forever and ever and ever, but... Thank you. We've got to go. <laughs> I'll Lovely. talk to you soon. Lots Thank of you. love. Thank you. Oh, that was so lovely. Actually, our producer, um, Kobe, had to come on and stop us because we were chatting away so long. <laughs> it was going on and on, but I could have carried on chatting to Gary for hours. What an interesting man. What a lovely man. So I hope you enjoyed it. And go and make that cuppa. I'm going to have another one. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. 
You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production. <laughs>